Hoody ho. Hi guys, welcome to episode 66. Alright guys, so we are back with another guest. This is more of a special guest for me because uh, she's kind of like Grandma Bullet because she's the woman who uh, contacted me to give me Bullet and uh, which, you know, now we're, I don't know, eight months later and we're happy. Uh, best buddies. So um, you want us to tell us your name and obviously, uh, you know, just a little about yourself. Well, my name is Terry, and I guess I've had an interesting life. Um, I was born uh, in 1961 with aortic stenosis, which is basically my aortic valve was almost closed. Oh, wow. Okay. And you said so, you were born like that? Yes. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, what do they do to correct it or keep it so that well, you can function in life? Well, I was considered what they call a blue baby, so I could basically pass away at any time because the valve was not functioning properly. Um, I was seen over the original Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, after I was born, so they decided to try to do open heart surgery on me. And at the time, I would be the youngest person to undergo that surgery. So in 1962, at 11 months old and 10 pounds, um, they scheduled my surgery to open the valve. That's all they were doing with. They told my mom um, they could open it and hopefully give me a few extra years to live. If they didn't have, if I didn't have the surgery, then I would basically not survive much longer than I was. Um, around the time of the surgery, either before the, right before the surgery, or, or including after the surgery, I coded three times. So I basically died, they brought me back three times. I was 11 months old at the time. Wow. Um, and I had a typical childhood. Kids play. Three years came and went. I was still here. Still going to the cardiologist once a year. And the only thing was with my childhood where other kids could really play hard. And I got in trouble for running which I guess I wasn't supposed to do, um, playing rough, horsing around. <laughs> uh, I climbed, was climbing trees. I was doing everything kids do. I fell out of the tree. When my mom finally realized I was okay, I was grounded mm-hmm. uh, in um, kindergarten. I did something. I don't even remember what it was I did, but I just remember I knew I was going to get my butt snacks. So I ran out the door. And ran around the block. I made it around the block completely. And I was on my second run around, but was getting winded. And she caught me, and I got in trouble. Not necessarily for what I did wrong, but for running around the block. Right. So, up until that um, point, like, because you know, they said they only, I mean, obviously the surgery was a success because they yeah. said you were only going to have a couple years left. What were the doctors saying now that you're years past of kind Eventually, of Eventually, I would have to, as a child, um, 
they knew I would have to have that valve replaced um, when I became an adult. And in 62, when they originally did the surgery, the surgery that they were performing on me at that time, I was the youngest patient to have the surgery and survive. And I'm written up in some medical book somewhere. I have no idea. But uh, it was um, uh, an extensive surgery at the time. And I don't know how many hours long it was. I would have to go back and go through my mom's notes because she kept notes during that time. Right. Is this the first surgery? Yeah, right. in 62 was the first one. Right. And then um, when I was 14 and 75, I was helping a friend on her paper route and got beat up. They were trying, kids were trying to steal her paper route money. So uh, with getting beat up, I was kicked and punched in the chest, which got that valve leaking. And they ended up having to schedule surgery later that year. It was the uh, assault happened in October and I had to have the surgery that December. So living up here in Pennsylvania in the Williamsport area, going to school, they had a medical helicopter on standby for me in case I was having problems. They would, take me, fly me to Children's Hospital for emergency surgery. Right. Before, so you, were, would, before you were attacked, um, mm-hmm. would you have had to get that surgery? I mean, obviously yeah. you were attacked, but... No. No. I would have had to wait until I was like around 18 or so to get it. Oh, so you would have had, had to get I it no matter what. Once I became an adult. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because when they, yeah. said, when they said you had years to live, did, did they say until you were 18? Like, you know, when they... Didn't know if it was going they, to be a success. What, how many years did they really give you? Originally, at the when I had my surgery and yeah. survived the surgery, right? Yeah, three. Yeah. Okay. So the, what my question was earlier was like, what was their feeling, and and how did they you know talk to you when they realized you know now you're eight years old, now you're fifteen years old? Like, obviously they gave you a second deadline, but were they kind of was it miraculous? Like, did they really think it was amazing that you pulled through this well? Um, well, I wasn't supposed to live past the age of three with the first surgery. Right. I wouldn't have lived much past a year old without the surgery. Right. And then they said, more than likely, um, I had a small leak because they didn't repair. I mean, they did as best they could with the valve, but with the body growing, with the heart growing, with everything changing, as you grow and get larger, you know, uh, the valve was leaking. Mm-hmm. It was um, not a major problem. It was like a trickle. And like the blood going through the artery, pretty much all of it went through, but some of it came back, like a backwash or something. I don't know how they explained it, but. They said, 
more than likely by the time I reached adulthood, which was between, I guess, 18 and 20, somewhere in that, and I stopped growing and everything, it would be best for me to consider having that valve replaced. And that's how they left it. Right. But didn't they think you were just a miracle as it is? Because your first deadline was to three. And now they're saying to 18. Yeah. Then obviously, you know, things change. Um, Right. Well, medical advances too. That too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. That's. I mean, they were doing, they were doing open heart surgery on people before 62. I just happened to be the youngest to have that particular surgery at the time. Right. Youngest and smallest. Now they they did do that surgery on other infants. They did not survive. Right. Gotcha. I uh, just happened to survive the surgery and go past their <clears throat> um wasn't necessarily a deadline, but it was just a them telling my mom, you know, she'll die without the surgery. Right. But she'll more than likely die with the surgery. We're just hoping to give her a few extra years. <clears throat> they left it that. Right. Yeah. And I, I forgot about how much I, time passed by. Because you said you know, 14. Considerable amount of time. Yeah, I was 14 in 75. And after <clears throat> the attack, uh, I was taken to the emergency room and um, had to go make an appointment and whatever with Children's Hospital employees, we had to go down there. They did a lot of tests, found that the valve was leaking a lot more and that I needed to have the surgery to replace the valve. They couldn't repair it. Excuse me. They couldn't repair it. It was beyond repair. So that's why they had me on medical standby that if I started showing complications, they would have to get me down there sooner than my scheduled surgery. And my scheduled surgery from the time of the attack till the 11th of December was a matter of six weeks, seven weeks. So I had the second surgery. They replaced the valve. They gave me a um, a Borshiley, which I guess was a one flap valve. The natural aortic valve has three flaps. They open and close. If you're looking at the valve, it, <clears throat> it kind of like looks like a peace sign in the middle with the little flaps. They open and close. Mine was just one flap, but you know, I had to be on blood thinner for it, and I tick. Because of it. Like a watch. Yeah, I've heard some people's uh, vows, and if you you put like a a microphone or or any kind of recording device to it, you can hear it very vividly. Well, I could hear it after they turned the machines and all off um, before they took me out of ICU to take me to a regular room. And my surgeon came in and was talking to me and He's like, well, you're all disconnected and we'll get you settled in the other room. And I would stay in the other room for about a week or so just to make sure everything was going well. And um, I'm like, yeah, no, I think you forgot a machine. I still hear clicking 
And that's when he explained that, no, that's you, and you'll have that the rest of your life. So there's nothing like being 14 and sick in school when a room is quiet and you're taking a test. You're the only one making noise. Right. Yeah, because now you're drawing attention to yourself. That's never good. Um, so then where do you go from there? Well, give me one moment. Oh, yeah. So then, okay, so, you, you know, obviously now you're you're going through your, um, your schooling and you're dealing with that, but so obviously the, the second surgery was a success? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, everything was good. Um, I have to be on blood thinner the rest of my life because of the valve. Oh, if yeah. I'm not, then blood can adhere to the metal that's plastic and stainless steel and cause clots. So I have to keep my INR in range. And at that time, my range was 2.0 to 3.0. If I fell below 2.0, I could get clots on the valve that could cause a stroke or any other normal, numerous problems. But um, if it goes too high and I get cut, I could bleed out. If I get hit in the stomach or hit hard anywhere, fall against something, I could have internal bleeding and bleed out. Wow. So. Uh, and that's, and that's something you have to, so, so that's something you have to, you said you have to worry about for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that affect you like in, in schooling and all that? Cause like I said, you know, well, when I, when I, when all this happened, I was in eighth grade. So after the attack, um, I was not allowed to do steps because it was put a strain on the heart. So um, I went to Stevens Junior High. Nowadays, it's an elementary school, but back then it was Stevens Junior High, and they had steps to go into the building. And my classes were on several of the different floors. So, um, and my mom, my brother, and I lived in an upstairs apartment. So my mom basically carried me up and down all those steps. And until my surgery, I stayed in the office of the guidance office and had my classes. Basically, I did my work, schoolwork in there because I wasn't allowed to do extensive walking because it would put a strain on my heart. So I spent my days in the office or in the guidance office. Had my lunch brought to me. My mom would come. We'd walk out. She'd carry me down the steps. We'd get in the car. We'd drive home. And she'd carry me up the steps to our apartment. Every day that I was in school. And then after I was discharged from the hospital, I was on home being home tutored for several months. And then when I finally did get back to school, I had to keep, I can do my classes on the first floor, but if it was a class that was upstairs or in the basement or lunch or anything, I had to do it in the office. 
How did that affect you, like, psychologically? I mean, you're a kid, so you want to, like, meet yeah. people and be friends. And Well, my friends would come and bring work to me, and I had several friends that um, we're still friends today. Oh, that's good. Well, through junior high and high school and all, and uh, we're still friends. One specifically is real close to me. We've always been, it's like we're part of each other, and... They, my friends never really got a chance to be in at the hospital when I was down there because it was so far away. But for the most part, I led a pretty normal um, childhood, teenage years and everything. Uh, the only thing is I didn't take regular gym class. So I had adaptive gym or study halls in high school. That was the difference. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's something that's, I think a lot of people take for granted. Most people don't realize just getting up and going up steps is something some people can't really do. Right. Um, are you, I'm assuming you're still that way to this day? Well, I can go up and down steps. <clears throat> yeah, I can do quite a bit. Oh. Uh, the one thing, okay. the one thing in school, <laughs> as or having my surgery and getting back in, into school <clears throat> for my body to get used to the med- the blood center, I would get nosebleeds. <laughs> oh, <wow>. So <clears throat> not that big a deal, except for if it looks like a murder scene. And right. they would call my mom at work. She would have to come pick me up. And a few times we had to go out to the emergency room because it was just like oh, everywhere. It was bad. And it made the school nervous, made the nurse nervous. Everybody was nervous. So instead of just having me sit and wait until it passed, no, she had to come pick me up and take me home or take me to the emergency room. But nosebleeds, after my body got used to the medicine, they stopped. I don't really have a problem with that anymore. That's good. When were you able to like actually start going up steps again? Um, after my surgery, um, I was able to do a little bit here and there. Um, when I was home, when we finally got home from the hospital and everything, I had to limit my steps. And in school, because you're rushing to go, you only have like three and a half minutes or four minutes to get from one class to another and you're rushing trying to rush up and down the steps is what the doctor didn't want me to do. At home, I could go down the steps, which were like, I guess a standard staircase was up like 12 or 13 steps. Um, going up, I usually paused halfway for a few moments and then would finish the steps. But as I got stronger after the surgery and everything, I was a lot better, and I, I was able to take the steps fine. And then by that some following summer, I was good up and down the steps. Not running, but walking normal up and down the steps, and I was good. Okay. I didn't have any problems from that point. <clears throat> That's good. Um, so, I mean, we, you know, we've been talking lately, and you have a lot of health issues going on now, but uh, was there anything in between there? from now in that surgery? Well, um, 
I was told after having that surgery, it was recommended that I not have children because of the medicine. I wouldn't be able to carry. So um, I never did have children. I did get married. Um, was married for 24 years. The marriage ended. Um, and we're still friends, so to speak. We talk. We have. I adopted um, a little girl. While we were married, I was. Um, we got into foster care. So that was our family. And over the course of 14 or 15 years, I took care of over 30 children. Wow. And they were generally long term placements. So they could be with us anywhere from several weeks to several months or years. And I was the primary caregiver, so it was medically needy and behaviorally challenged kids that we took care of. So we had a lot of drug-addicted, alcohol-addicted babies. Kids came with just med medical conditions, um, blind, broken bones. They needed care for a certain amount of time. Some were adopted with siblings into other families. Some were abuse cases. So, what made you I, get into that? Wanting to have a family and not being able to have kids. Yeah, but what made you? I mean, you chose these kids who were foster care. Yeah, I mean that, that it's a very well. Rough we went through. Place. We were out of state. We were living in New Jersey at the time, and we were um, the adoption or the uh, foster agency that I contacted was foster. And adoption. So you fostered, but you also, if the child became, that you were fostering became available for adoption, you had the option of adopting that child. And that was the easiest route to take at the time. Right. And uh, they were Pennsylvania children, so we had an interstate compact with Pennsylvania where they could come across the bridge and still be cared for. We had to have training and then I had to because I was the primary caregiver I had to have monthly training and I was always CPR and first aid certified the whole time it was involved and the primary kids that they got in were kids who had issues they had problems of one way or another right. neglect abuse sexual abuse Emotional abuse, trauma, drugs, alcohol. So, and we dealt with um, the younger from like 12, 13 on down were the kids that I primarily took care of. They're more grade school and young child babies. Right. And we have main, maintained contact with, and there's, I'm still mom to my first placement, my first, what I would consider my first son is in Arizona. He is now, he will, no, yeah, he will be 32 this coming September. Then I have 
two boys who are brothers. One turned 31. He turned 31 in April. The other one will be 35 in July. And we were able to adopt one daughter. She turned 27 in September, or in February. And most of them I picked up were babies. The sibling group, the two brothers, he was, the one was seven weeks old, the other was three and a half. Right. Yeah, I was going to wonder because yeah. when you said you didn't have any kids and then you told me your daughter's yeah. the one that had bullets. <laughs> I was yeah. trying to figure out how well, that, that was, all worked out. That's my stepdaughter. Right. When I remarried several years ago, marrying him, he had a daughter and twin sons. Uh, so I gained three children. And I don't consider her a step. I consider her a child. Right. Of course. So she's my daughter and I have two more sons. And a roommate that I had down in Delaware years ago, um, she kind of adopted me unofficially as her mom. And then when I married my second husband, he became dad. She has no contact with her birth parents. Right. They're divorced. They live their own lives. They're out of state, whatever. And so I acquired another daughter. So I, I always prayed to have a big family and God gave me one. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, the foster Fostering kids is something a lot of people don't talk about because, you know, I've talked about the kids, you know, two million kids going missing a year, but people don't really talk about the how many parents just leave their kids God knows where yeah. right. uh, and all the horrible incidences. And, and and then they have to deal with, you know, all these shelters and then the foster parents and a lot of foster parents aren't the greatest. There are some really good ones right. like you. But there's a lot of bad ones, and these kids just get uh -huh. passed it's around bad. and abused worse than their probably actual parents would have done. And, the older, yeah. the older kids that we had, when I knew that they were doing a reunification with family, I always let them know, and I always drilled into their heads who we were, our name and our phone number and our address, and who our agency was through that they were through to come to us. And if they had to come back into care for any reason to contact that agency and then to contact us that we, they were welcomed back with us. And we did have one girl return to us that eventually did go, eventually go back home with her family. But yeah, it happened. But, um, bumping up the story a bit, um, in 2005, when I was 44, I was working at food service. Um, I thought I was eating healthy. I thought I was doing really good for myself. And my INR slipped. It went way below my range. And at the time, I didn't realize it. It happened slowly over the course of two months. And 20 minutes into my shift at work, I had a massive stroke. I had two blood clots on the right side of my brain, just above my ear. And I lost everything on the left. I lost, including speech, 
So I lost function in my leg, lost function in my left arm, and I couldn't talk. I was taken by ambulance from where I worked to the local hospital, which was in Delaware at the time. They did a CAT scan, explained the situation. They couldn't help me. They contacted um, hospital over in Philly, Thomas Jefferson, Neurosciences. They flew me by helicopter there. And I was talking to the doctor on the phone, which was basically the emergency room doctor holding the phone out to me. And he was asking me questions. And I had to blink one time for yes, two times for no. And the the emergency room doctor was answering for me for me to give permission to have this procedure done. So I had to be flown to Philadelphia and I was in two ambulances, one helicopter and three hospitals in one day. And of course I didn't have insurance. (laughs) So they, they had my information, um, off of my phone and from family members who were contacted and they knew that I was on blood center and everything. Once they started bringing my INR back up, function started coming back slowly. So they kept me a week as long as I could swallow without choking, go up and down several steps without falling and walk down the hall. They discharged me. So I still have issues from the stroke. I have spasticity after stroke in my left leg and in my left arm, which means it's basically 75% weaker than my right side. Cognitively, I've gotten a lot better. Um, I still can't multitask very well. And talking, I pause because I have to get my words right. Sometimes I get a little confused, but otherwise I do pretty good. You're doing fine, honestly. And I read a lot better than I did in the beginning. I couldn't read a sentence without having to reread it 10 times. So, but overall I'm doing pretty good. Um, in, what was it, 2008? When I was 47, I was told that the mitral valve, I, well, back in my 20s, they were watching me for mitral valve prolapse, which a lot of women get. Well, it had progressed to mitral valve regurgitation um, in 2008. So after January or so, I was like having issues with getting tired walking across the room. Um, we only had a couple of steps to come into the house at the time. And I would get winded easily. Once the cardiologist, cardiologist said that the mitral valve is getting worse. And he referred me to a surgeon. Went to the surgeon and I was, this was in like April, May. And he said, you know, we can 
do the surgery, repair or replace the mitral valve. I can give you an updated aortic valve. Um, take the weekend, think about it, and let me know. Otherwise, we can wait six months and, you know, revisit it. But you're going to have to have it done eventually. So, took the weekend, spent time talking with my daughter, other family, called on Monday and said, we might, we might as well just go for it because the sooner the better, which was good because I had the surgery that July and in doing so, right before the surgery, they had to do more tests, just the preliminary tests for the surgery. They found that I had an aortic aneurysm in the ascending arch. So just before the arch of the aorta, I had an aneurysm. So when they did the surgery a couple of days later, the, the aneurysm had gotten a lot larger and a lot thinner. So I wouldn't be here if I decided to wait six months for the surgery. It would have burst. But they gave me an updated aortic valve. They gave me a new mitral valve. So now I have two artificial valves. And they're working good. All my tests have been fine with my heart. Everything's going well. And uh, in 2015, after I moved back up here, I was 54. That summer, I had a mini stroke that affected my right side. Didn't lose total function, but I ended up having a mini stroke, and I didn't have a reason why, because my INR was over four, so it was high. They just assumed or attributed to small blood vessels in my head. Like, lucky me. Yeah, I know. Uh, it always seems like it's something. Every time every time you <laughs> yeah. get to a certain place of like, oh, okay, cool, we're, mm -hmm. we're doing good, and then something yeah. horrific comes around the well, corner. Yeah, so far, um, overall, I'm... I guess doing okay. Um, backtracking in 2007, um, I guess it was right before Christmas, sometime like early December, uh, the house I was in had a basement and I was carrying something light down to the basement. And as soon as I went through the door, I pulled the door shut because heat's on. I fell down all those wooden steps Head over heels, landed about five feet from the basement steps, crumpled. I hit, it was a concrete floor. I knocked myself unconscious. So when my daughter and uh, roommate came over, and there I am at the bottom of the steps in a crumpled heap, of course, they thought my neck was broke, my back was broke, my legs were broke. They, yeah. So I ended up having to go to the emergency room for that. Ambulance took me. I was badly bruised but nothing was broken. God was with me. I was sore and purple, but God was with me. Why did you fall? Did you just lose your balance or? Yeah, probably. Okay. I didn't know if it was just because you were pulled... klutz or no, I just, health condition. No. Well, that's probably too, but no, I pulled the door shut. And as soon as I pulled the door shut, it was, oh shit, I know I was going down and I hit every step. <laughs> okay. 
yeah. about. But uh, because of the, the residue, the issues that I have from the stroke, I have um, foot drop on the left side. So I have a limp. My ankle is weak. And I went to a doctor here in town to see about having ankle surgery. And um, I had my ankle surgery scheduled. Well, prior to that, I had my normal cardiology appointment. And they always, you know, just routine tests. Well, this time they happened to decide to check for um, an abdominal aneurysm. I hadn't been checked for one. I had one in the heart in the aorta, so they decided to check lower on the aorta. Well, in doing so, they found that the iliac artery on the right was most of the way blocked or fully blocked. And capillaries and all grew from that and enlarged to feed the femoral artery in my right leg. The iliac artery on the left side had a trickle going through it and capillaries were helping to feed the femoral artery on my left leg. So blood flow was compromised going into my legs, but there was enough to keep them functioning that I never even noticed it. And the cardiologist had referred me to a um, vascular doctor. Just have it checked. And that's what they found, you know. But um, he said, you know, they could do surgery and fix it. And right now I have pulses and everything is good. They're not great, but they could be improved. And I said, well, if I don't have to have the surgery, I'm not going to worry about it. So I didn't. But I did want my ankle done. And a couple days before, and I mean a couple, like two days before my surgery on my ankle, my, the doctor doing the surgery on my ankle calls me and said he had gotten a report from the vascular surgeon and going over everything, he canceled my ankle surgery because I would not have adequate enough blood flow for healing in that left foot. So in order to have the ankle surgery, I would have to have the vascular surgery. So in 2018, when I was 57, I had an aorto and aortofemoral bypass graft surgery done. So basically now my iliac arteries that your aorta comes down and then it branches at that Y on either side of that Y going into your abdomen to both groins, is your, it becomes your iliac artery. Mine is now rubber tubing. Wow. So, so and I haven't had the ankle surgery. <laughs> oh, you still haven't had it? No, I need it, but I, yeah, I really don't want, you know, I'm not looking forward to another surgery. That vascular surgery um, took a lot out of me. Yeah. It was a lot. So what 
what is it? I mean, I know there's some other things too, but what, what is it that keeps you going? Because, I mean, it's just one thing after another. I mean, I'm glad that you God. do. Okay. God has a purpose for me. And it's his purpose that has seen me through every hurdle, every obstacle. And he continues to provide and take care of me. Um, I know I've talked to you briefly about some med- medical issues that came up. Right. Um, well, this past February, on my birthday, I was having pressure in my heart. In my, it felt like my heart was just pounding hard. I figured there was an issue going on. We went out to the emergency room. They ended up keeping me for two days. But when I was in there in the emergency room, they did a CAT scan. My heart seemed okay. But they found cysts on one kidney, a cyst on my thyroid, and a cyst on my left ovary. Well, if we back up in time, um, in near 2000, uh, that summer, I think it was July, in the middle of the night, it was around 12 or so, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, I didn't feel good. I got up, was nauseous, everything. Long story short, basically, I thought I was having a, a problem with my appendix. I had every all the signs pointed to my appendix. So my husband called ambulance. They came. They took me to the emergency room, <clears throat> and in the ambulance. The fever, the nausea, everything pointed, the sensitivity on the right side, everything pointed to my appendix. They did tests, and they thought it was a ruptured appendix. So they scheduled emergency surgery. My appendix was fine. What happened was I had an egg, a small eggplant-sized ovarian cyst on my left ovary that ruptured, and I was bleeding internally. And because of the way I was laying on the bathroom floor, the blood pulled on the right side, which was causing the pain on the right side, clouding on the right side, so that when they did the CAT scan, they saw the clouding on the right side. That's why they thought it was my appendix. So basically, I was bleeding out. I was hemorrhaging internally. So I lost the left fallopian tube, left ovary, and they removed the cyst. Now, coming forward to now, I saw a gynecologist about the cyst on my left ovary. I sent for my medical records from when I was in the hospital, and they state right on there that the left ovary, left fallopian tube, and that cyst were all removed. Well, they did an ultrasound, and here the only thing I could figure is a small piece of that left ovary was left behind. And that's what the cyst grew on. <laughs> Couldn't go on the right one. Had to grow on the left one. The cyst on the ovary is bigger than the piece of the ovary that's left. Go figure. <laughs> yeah. And I had to have a biopsy on the uh, cyst in my thyroid, which is a hemorrhagic cyst. Basically, it's full of blood. And it was non-cancerous. Um, 
they're going to, they're watching this cyst on my ovary and then my thyroid. So that's where we are. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and you're, you're what? 60 now? Yeah. I turned 60. That's what I thought. I spent my birthday in the, in the hospital. Uh, Had lots of attention, even through, through COVID. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's funny because as you said, no, I guess it's not that funny, but you said it off mic earlier about how, wow, I don't really have much of a story. No, I, I don't really think of it as much of a story. Um, hopefully the valves will hold out and outlive me. The other two valves seem to be doing okay. I haven't had any problem with them. There was talk... Um, a while back, a couple of years back, that um, I may eventually need a pacemaker, but we're not dealing with that yet. The heart's still doing okay. Mm-hmm. If I go into AFib again, um, like happened after the third surgery, which was typical, um, they could they'll just do a cardioversion, which is basically they stop the heart and then with paddles they restart the heart. I had to have the cardioversion done a couple times so far, but nothing in a number of years. So that's all good. And now I just enjoy life with my husband, my mom, and all my kids and grandkids now. Yeah, I mean, you seem more positive and, than most would be in your situation. I have. I think the thing that keeps me going the most is my faith in God, knowing that he's got me to this point, he's not going to leave me. Right. Of all the things that have could have happened in my life and didn't, that's not faith. That's God. Well, you know, and, you, people usually go one of two ways. They either go the way you did or they go... You know, obviously hating God and, uh, and yeah. cursing Him because of, you know, all of this. Right. I mean, I could have pulled the "Why me, God?" but it's more like, "Wow, look what you've done." I mean, yeah, my body wasn't perfect when I was born. Okay, I had a great surgical team the first time. Um, you're young. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, Dr. C. Everett Koop. He used to be the Surgeon General of the United States way back decades ago. Yeah, no, I haven't heard of him. He was part of my first surgical team. I got to speak with his, I guess, secretary about eight or ten years ago on the phone after getting the information that he was part of my first surgical team. I had a cardiologist come out of retirement to care for me when I was a baby. I've had great doctors all throughout my whole life. And 
I'm just excited to see where the rest of my life takes me. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, when, when did you? I mean, yeah, go ahead. Huh? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, before I have to have any kind of a procedure or surgery, um, I have to do with like even biopsy or colonoscopy, anything like that. I have to go on what they call a Lovenox bridge because I'm on blood thinner. And it's where I go off the blood thinner and then I take shots in the belly every 12 hours until right before the procedure and then, or the surgery. And then the shots are given after that every 12 hours. And then I slowly go back on my medicine and come off the shot. And it's the shots in the stomach that, yeah, they're not fun. So that's the main reason I'm not doing the surgery on my ankle right now. I'm just not looking forward to the, the prep to do it. And then the long recovery afterwards. Right. It'll happen. Well, you know your body better than anybody. so Yeah, you know, it'll happen. I'm just... I haven't found my nerve yet. I, I'm still looking for it. <laughs> I'll find it one of these days. I don't know where it's hiding. It's all right. If it's in the house or out in the yard, I'm, it's, it's there somewhere. You'll find it. Um, yep. <laughs> well, I do appreciate you doing this. Um, you know, I told you before, you know, through text or whatever that, you know, if you ever need anything, just please say so. I'm always forever oh, grateful just because of you giving me bullet. Um, yeah. Well, he, he is definitely content. He is happy. He is loved beyond measure, and you're a great cat dad. <laughs> I try, I try. Yeah, everyone likes to point out the fact that he got a lot chubbier with me. Um, yeah, well, he's not competing with anybody. There's yeah. no other animals except for stuff. You are his, and he is yours, and you make a good team, mm. and he knows he can rely on you, and he doesn't have to worry about another dog, two other dogs, or anything else. It's just you and him. Yeah. Family members, if you come, or friends when they come over, but for the most part, it's you and him. So he knows where he stands with you. Yeah. He's a... And he doesn't have to worry. He doesn't have to stress over anything. So he can be himself. Yeah, he's, Relax. He's super loving and affectionate and... Uh huh. He can be a pain yeah, in the ass he's... sometimes in the middle yeah. of the night yelling, and it's like, oh, bullet quiet. He's a, he's, a, he's a little uh, needy. Yeah, oh, yeah. He's definitely needy. But, like, you didn't pay enough attention to me. I want snuggles. Yeah. Or treats. Treats, yeah. Because, I mean, he, he pretty much knows time, which I think they all do, because Diva, the uh-huh. guy I had before him. You know, she was the same way, and it's like, okay, you get up early in the morning, got to get up. And then it's like, well, uh-huh. I, I don't work on the weekend, so I'm not getting up that early. And then it's like, oh, yeah. that's a problem. With him, if I get up in the middle of the night, he tends to think that that's, you know, oh, I go to the bathroom. He thinks I'm getting snacks. And <laughs> so he just started yeah. to, he started playing a game with me where um, if I don't give him snacks, I have like a second to get back to the bed, or he tries to bat at my ankles. So I have to run and dive in my bed at two in the morning. It's like, so that gives you exercise. Oh yeah, it's it's fun. See that? Yeah, 
he, you know, he turns it into a game. And now you, what you could do is, um, they ha- they make them cat puzzles. Uh-huh. I think we found one at Walmart for like five, six bucks. And you can either put little treats or food in it, dry food. Okay. And they have to slide the little doors to get them. It gives them that hunting instinct. It triggers it. And they either slide it one way or flip it another way. And there's little compartments where you can hide stuff. Oh, I'll have to check those out. I didn't know they yeah. existed. Uh-huh. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, like, I think it was like five or six bucks. He, and if you do a Google search, I know they have even better ones online or even like through Petco or uh, PetSmart. They have all kinds of little cat puzzles, treat puzzles. Yeah, to check that out. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he. Um, one of the things I noticed about him, like, as much as I loved my other cat, you know, I, I definitely think boy cats are a lot more loving. But she, you know, she had her moments where she's just like, you know. She could be aggressive and, and want to play and, and so on. And she would go all in. Whereas him, like, he's the least aggressive cat ever. Other than with his toys, he's just, like, even when he wants to play with me, he'll, like, bat at my ankles, but it's, like, a little light tap. Like, mm-hmm. he's just, uh, yeah, he's super loving. He doesn't have any malice or any intention of trying to hurt me. So it's, uh, it's very nice. Well, I'm con- every once in a while, I'll send his his little pictures and different things over to um, my daughter and let her see how he's doing. They get excited knowing he's in such a loving home. Yeah. He's, yeah. I take so many pictures and videos of him. He's always doing something. (laughs) Well, he's your baby. (laughs) Yeah. I can't help it. Um, But again, like I said, thank you for doing this and everything else. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, You know, down the road, we'll, I'll probably do like an update episode where I'll update a couple of other guests and you'll be one of them just to kind of say. Yeah, what, just get a hold of me. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll talk beyond the podcast stuff, but just, yeah. uh, you know, just give an update on how you're doing and, you know, what else you've been up to with other surgeries and, and, and whatnot. Sounds good. All right. Well, you have a nice day. And like I say, you need anything, just message me. All right. You take care, Tim. All right. You Bye-bye. too. Bye. All right, guys. I know, weird, someone called me Tim. Usually when someone calls me Tim, I'm in trouble. Or like my mom would call me Timothy James, which is my middle name. That's the, t- that's the TJ part, if I'd ever explain that to you guys. Um, yeah, it's Grandmama Bullet. That was fun. I, I Like I said, she told me that she didn't have anything else to say, or she didn't have much of a story, and I'm just like, I, I didn't know all of it. I knew some of it. And I had to remember because some of it she told me years, not years ago, but, you know, months ago. And as she was going through it, I'm just like, oh, yeah, this is the stuff I remember now. And she absolutely has a story. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to do that. And I have been thinking about doing like an update episode where, you know, like Rob and, and, and her and just and a few other guests just see where, you know, what has progressed in their life and, and what they're up to now. Um, and we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, 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 that'll be something down the road, you know, the distant future, not, nothing too crazy, but just somewhere down the road where we get to, you know, to see how everybody's doing or at least some of them. 
um, because the more guests I get, it's going to be kind of hard to do an episode where like everybody does a five minute thing of how they're doing. So yeah, I mean, it'll probably be like five or six people just like, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this now. Uh, my life's going this way, you know? So, uh, anyway, guys, again, thank you for all the support, you know, like comment, subscribe and all that jazz, um, and share with anybody who can really use it. You know, there are people who reach out and, and, say that it's helping them and you know like i said every condition that we cover it it it, it broadens our horizons and it broadens the uh, you know it opens minds and shows you know that you know we, there's unity here like we need that's the thing i'm going for like i want people to realize that disabled community isn't as sporadic as it is i mean it is but it's like we need to start bridging this gap and bringing everyone closer and we can't do it by just you know, talking about it, we can't just do it by um, thinking it. We have to, we have to do. We have to, you know, be assertive and, and make it happen. Um, and we need to show how much, you know, much we actually bring to the table and, and why we need what we need uh, of the multitude of topics and things that we've covered. And um, yeah, so uh, and she's and Terry is a great guest, and she, she you know, she made it happen and I'm, I'm very thankful and uh i wish bullet stayed around here he was here laying here and you heard him i'm sure making some noises in the background he was purring and all that and but he he wanted to climb on the board and i almost let it happen just because she knows him and just be funny just to kind of let him try to ruin her interview but he didn't um but also the board's too expensive and i don't need him clawing at it so um Anyway, guys, again, talk too much. Shut up, TJ. But, yeah, guys, thank you for everything, and uh, I will see you guys on the next one. Bye.